Another day is here, and you're ready for it. What to wear? Check. Breakfast, lunch, and dinner? Check. Planning for what's next and how to save for it? That's where Bank of America can help. For your financial to-dos, Bank of America has experts ready to help get you closer to your goals. Get started at one of our local financial centers or 24-7 in our mobile banking app. Find a location near you at bankofamerica.com slash talk to us. What would you like the power to do? Mobile banking requires downloading the app and is only available for select devices. Message and data rates may apply. Bank of America and a member FDSE. Woke up this morning into my car to start my day. First stop is my buyer who six months ago walked away. When I arrived, he treats me like commodity. Back on his inner connect, he wants price and delivery. And if we're over $20, he tells me this business we're gonna lose. He's got a singing that old don't know value Welcome everybody to the Value Clarity Podcast, where we believe that customer value is the core of your business mission. And you should either focus everybody in your company on the customer or focus them on the door. Today, I am thrilled to have Krister Ungerbeck. Uh, Krister has led uh, one of the most important uh, technology, family-owned technology businesses in his sector uh, to grow at 3,000%. I, you know, you, you hear me talking about where to lead towards customer perceived value. Krister uh, specializes in how. Krister, welcome. Thank you very much for the invitation. I'm glad to be here. So I understand this series is more geared towards senior executives and CEOs. Yes, like you have been. Um, You've kind of left that world to to kind of share the secrets of how you've led, which is uh, really great because uh, your specialty is now sharing, sharing your magic, not just living your magic. Yeah, well, it's actually it's even more than it's actually sharing the some of the greatest secrets that I learned actually were after I left my role as CEO, uh, because uh, what I found is I had a basically kind of my whole world basically blew up uh, and it blew up in large part because of broken relationships with my shareholders, board members, you know, the CEOs on the call and uh, would realize, but like, even CEOs have bosses. So, you know, if you have other shareholders, our customers as CEOs are to serve our shareholders. Um, so, uh, what I realized is a lot of the, while we had amazing success, we built a company worth hundreds of millions of dollars, uh, that fortunately we actually just sold, uh, this year. Um, but I just, uh, I realized that, uh, ultimately we would have gotten so much more accomplished if, uh, if I had known then what I know now about how my own communication was actually getting in the way and reducing kind of the engagement of some of our key people kind of watch some of the clips of your talk and and you you said you realized one day that you were a leader with no followers yeah so i went from you know leading this uh company with hundreds of employees in you know eight countries to uh walking out on the ceo job that i of the company i'd helped build and loved and then my wife walked out on me two weeks later and so i kind of looked at all these business and leadership books that i've been reading and i said well if my family doesn't want to follow me and my shareholders don't want to follow me, then like maybe I'm reading the wrong things. And so I started shifting where I was looking for secrets. Uh, my whole kind of guiding principle was if you want to find surprising secrets, you need to look in surprising places. So uh, I hung out with a lot of yeah people I would have judged out as far out and weird uh, before back when I was CEO and translated a lot of their insights into things that can be used in the business world. Christopher, I, I think that's great. 
I love the fact that you sought different perspectives from outside of the leadership group think to learn how to truly lead. Yeah. It's been, it's been a, it's been an interesting journey. Admittedly. I, yeah. I know a lot of the, probably one of the biggest things I learned from a CEO leadership perspective is, you know, and some people often ask like, so, well, like you built this company that's worth hundreds of millions of dollars. Like I would love to have that success. So like, you know, um, but I realized that we did it uh, with, a, I did it with a really aggressive leadership style. And I realized that there's really two way, reasons why people follow someone, whether you're leading a sales team or you're leading a, a company. Um, I follow because you have a vision of where you're going that I want to be part of, or I follow because I want to follow you. And ultimately, I realized looking back now is that the reason that I was successful was because people were following the vision that I had, uh, but they weren't necessarily following me. Now, if you can have both of those where you have a vision and you are someone that people want to follow, uh, then that's kind of the, that's the double, you know, where that's the secret sauce. But it's even more important if you aren't a CEO or you aren't a co-founder in a business, the reality is, is you don't have much impact over the vision. You know, I was able to go and say, hey, we're going to build a, my goal is we're going to build a billion dollar company. And I was able to attract some amazing minds to help me do that. But what do you do if you're a sales manager or a customer service manager in the middle of the organization? The only tool you have is to be someone that people want to follow. That's brilliant. And so what you learned were, were what you call the talk shifts, shifting how you talk, shifting the questions you ask. So tell yeah. us more about that. So, I mean, I was an engineer and I was always really wanted to have really practical tools. Uh, so like, you know, like touchy feely stuff that's conceptual was, I mean, it was nice, you know, around like strategy and like alignment, but really I wanted to get down to like, what's something that if I read the page, I can start actually using this tomorrow. And so in kind of going to all these kind of strange and interesting places, I was always looking, how can I translate these tools into specific words that people can use, like fill in the blanks, phrases, questions that people can start using tomorrow to change how they lead and change the impact that they have on people. And so I think a lot of times, you know, whether it's a problem employee or somebody in our personal lives, we often think that, oh, that we need to change that person. Uh, but what I realize is if we actually just change our words, then the people will follow. And so we can change the interactions and the results that people, and, and ultimately our relationships with people that we work with, uh, while they're working at home, simply by changing our words. All right. So uh, I'm devil's advocate. Sounds too good to be true. Just the words. Versus what else? Right. Versus what else? Right. Um, you, you say in some of your talks that you, you had your heart was in the right place. And if we think of your words as what you're trying to express, what's really in your heart, um, but you chose the wrong words that landed the wrong way, that caused the wrong picture and the wrong emotional response in your recipient. Yeah. So, you know, in sales, I tell people, you only get a commission based on what happened in the other guy's head. Yeah. And then that's the same thing. It's like, you know, I say the specific thing that I say in the book is I say, I, uh, my heart was in, my right, in the right place, but my words were not. And so, you know, in a lot of these kind of uh, retreats that I would go on, they'd say, oh, well, you need to kind of change yourself from the inside out. You need to change your heart first. And ultimately, you know, I, I do, there's, there's, certainly it's important that we kind of change what's inside as well. 
But ultimately, if I change what's in my heart or in my mind, but I'm still speaking with the same words, how do you know? I mean, I'm going to still have the same impact on you. So there's this assumption in kind of like the philosophy community that if I somehow change like what I'm thinking and what's on the inside, that like my words are naturally going to change. And so what I found is the opposite is if we change our words, what we find is we end up changing ourselves from the outside in. Because what happens is, you know, in, in technology, I had a software company, is like they have this phrase called garbage in, garbage out. If you have bad inputs, then you have bad outputs. Well, a lot of times in our conversations, um, our, the words we speak to others are the inputs to that conversation. And so if I say something to you, Mark, depending on what I say to you, I'm going to have a, a different response from you. Yep. And so the easiest way to change our interactions, whether it's with a customer or an employee or a family member, the easiest way to change our interactions is simply to change our words. I, I, I completely agree. And, you know, I thinking back to a sales training where they said, when you're talking about asking questions, because salespeople are trained to ask questions, really avoid it's it's not a don't do it, but it's a yellow light. If you start with the question and start the question with the word, why? Yeah, because why? I mean, when we were young children, um, a parent asked why, which was the start of an accusation. Yes. The, yes. The, right. The word why, it, even with with a pure heart, if you ask a question that starts with why, the way it lands on the recipient's ears is stimulating that child's brain uh, that dad or mom is or a teacher has started yeah. asking me, I mean, it's, it's about to be, why are you so stupid? Or why are you so, right? Why yeah. are you like, so the, the question why, there's nothing wrong intrinsically, logically with why. It just happens to land wrong most of the time. It lands yeah. with unintended effect. And so you're expanding that one little nugget of don't use why with a whole series of what to do instead. Yeah. And so in our case, in the talk shows, we recommend some questions like, tell me more about that. Or I wonder um, what's behind that. Because I totally agree that the, the why questions put people on the defensive. And then so some other examples of simply taking all of your questions and starting with the word what or how. It takes all of your questions from any yes, no question can quickly be converted to an open-ended question. Use it by just putting the word what or how at it. I had somebody, uh, I was just on a meeting today and they had a number of, um, you know, yes, no questions that said, were you critical or were you inspiring? It's for some project we're working on. And I said, you can turn that into an open-ended question to say, in what ways were you inspiring? In what ways were you critical? And so the more we can ask questions that open people up and give them, you know, basically more open-ended responses, then we'll have better, deeper conversations. You know, that's a great sales training course um, because so many times we ask those closed-ended questions, uh, but you're actually, as a salesperson, you want to understand the entire entirety of the customer's world. And when you ask, it, it's not just open-ended questions, but it's the questions that help you understand the white space between all those closed-ended questions that yeah. you thought you wanted to know, because yeah. the, the, even in, in sales and in leadership and in interpersonal communications, the revelation was in what you didn't know you needed to know, right? In the white space between the questions you actually had, you thought you had. 
um, when you ask for a tell me a big story question, um, there's so much magic in those big stories between the, the questions you thought you had. Yeah. I think there was a, there's an art, there's an exercise in the book that I call the magic management eight ball. And I think it applies to sales too. I was just in Phoenix yesterday with a friend of mine. Who's a, he's basically the VP of sales for a large technology company. He's, you know, essentially leads the whole sales organization. He said today, um, you know, with zoom, it's even more important that salespeople have their questions on point because like if we lose people in the first five or 10 minutes of a zoom, like we may not get the opportunity. You know, and he was talking about how his salespeople often start with like, how many servers do you have? Like these are, they are questions to start with how, but they're how many. They're essentially closed-ended, closed, closed yeah. questions where it's like five, 10. It's not really adding more. Versus um, in the book, we talk about this magic management eight ball challenge. And the thought is like, if you have good questions, you can almost pick randomly from this list of questions and you can ask. So like in the sales, it could be like, so what's driving, you know, you know, what what's driving the need to do this now? What's the impact if we don't get it done in the next three months? How much is that going to cost your organization to help the customer come to the realization of what it's costing their organization rather than us attempting to tell them? Um, I couldn't agree more, Krister. Um, I tell them to keep on asking questions until the answers come back in dollars. Yeah. Right. Yeah. Tell, tell me more about that. What, what is that? T that sounds bad. Tell me, does, do you have a, do you know how much mm -hmm. that's costing you a year? And if they, if they come back with dollars, um, you've actually caused them to think through their situation in more clarity, in more detail than anybody else who's talked to them about that problem. Yeah. Um, so you, 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 I don't know I'm going to pick because you said, do you, do you know how much that's costing you? And again, that's a yes, no question. Yeah. As you also sum it, so you could say, what is that costing you? However, the other side is in a sales situation. So let's say I'm trying to say, say I'm trying to sell something for a million dollars or whatever. Then I might actually frame the question as a multiple choice. Would you, would you think solving this problem is going to, you know, is, is not having this problem solved. Is that leading to more or less than $10 million in impact in the organization? And I'm choosing 10 million because it's 10 X, whatever I'm selling. Right. Yeah. So so, yeah. and, and some people, when placed with an open-ended question of what's that costing you, they, their, their head is, I don't know, but I might be able to actually focus the question by saying more or less than 10 million. And they'd be like, oh, more than 10 million. So now I've basically locked them in. This is my million dollar solution. This is your $10 million problem. And, and you're, you're absolutely right. And whether it's 12 or 20 hardly matters when you're selling something for a million dollars. Yeah. So, yeah, that's, that's great. So um, tell us more about some of the, some of the talk shifts, some of the questions that you like to, that you like to help leaders start to ask some of the ways. The, and I think it's not just the questions, but now it's ways of thinking um, yeah. that you're trying to get people to, to walk through. Well, I think that what I've found is that as we start changing, you know, a lot of these talk shifts are questions we can ask others, but some of them are simply asking them of ourselves. Um, you know, I, I imagine, I remember there was a salesperson who worked in our organization who people would always get frustrated with because in the, in meetings, this person would always talk more and they would always, you know, they always had to have like the last word. Um, and, um, 
and so one of the questions we have in the book is to ask ourselves, uh, what is the need that someone's expressing What's when they behave that way? And so, especially when we have, we're presented with behavior that annoys us or frustrates us within someone else. And we say, well, what, what's the need that that person is expressing? Well, maybe like they need to be more, you know, they need more acknowledgement. They need more time in the spotlight. So it starts to help us reframe that, oh, maybe, you know, yeah, maybe I, rather than being angry or frustrated with that person, maybe I feel a little bit of sadness for them that they must be, you know, that they, they have the need to talk so much because, uh, sorry, they don't have the need to talk so much. They have a need for attention that drives them to talk so much. And, um, Ultimately, it can potentially, by reframing how we see that person, less as like an arrogant jerk and more of a person who has some needs that aren't being met because they may be lonely in their life. Uh, and and I, I'm projecting because I know this individual, like what their personal situation was. Yeah. Um, it, it, can, it can build some more compassion. I always, I always joke, and I think this happens pretty much in all organizations. One of the reasons we wrote the book is it's ultimately about communication that reduces frustration in relationships. And I think strained and estranged relationships are everywhere in business. You know, the salespeople don't like the marketing people, the service people don't like the salespeople and everybody hates IT people. Yeah. <laughs> well, and, and salespeople don't hate their managers, but don't understand why they're asking those questions. Don't understand why that, how that's possibly moving the ball forward. And sales managers don't understand why their salespeople did that thing. Yeah. Um, right. Why did you ask the customer that? Or why did you do that? Why did you send that email? Um, yeah. Why, why, why? Right. And yeah. um, so an alternative would be what would have been, well, you know, rather than saying, why did you do that? Say, I had one case and I had this example, and I think this could apply to it as something as simple as an email. Somebody was writing a report. I think it was like a, probably like a sales plan for how they were going to grow 20% next year or whatever. Gave them a couple of weeks to work on it. We met a couple of times and they brought the report in. It happened to be on a day that I had like just back-to-back meetings. I didn't have time to review it. Uh, we had to cancel the meeting. I said, hey, before you go, uh, what are three things that you think uh, could be improved about this, you know, this work product that you've been working on for a couple of weeks? And the person said, well, this, this, and this. And I said, well, why don't you go and work on those three things and then let's meet after tomorrow about your report. So I went from what would have been maybe I would have read this report for 30 minutes and typed another email of here's all the things that I wanted to do, or we spent an hour discussing the report to spending 30 seconds saying, what are the three things that you knew, you know, you need, you would do, you would improve if you had more time and then let them to go do it. And so I saved myself an hour and I got probably the same result because I probably would have found the same three things that they already knew. So in that case of an email, you could just say, so what, what would you, if you, if you wrote this email again, what would you, what would you change? What would you do differently? You know, um, I'm seeing so many applications for what you do in every level of, of, of leadership, uh, but especially sales leadership, because we, we teach that sales leaders, frontline sales leaders who are probably, that is probably the hardest job in business because um, everybody's asking you for reports and you've got no information in the CRM because your salespeople didn't fill it out. And so you've got to bother them. All right. So it, it, you're, you're getting hit from above. You're trying to help the people on your team without being the super seller, 
try to help them become better rather than stepping in and elbowing them out of the way and closing the deal for them. It's an awful, awful, difficult job. Um, maybe may, not may, it's may not, not awful. Have... It's not awful, but it's really hard. Um, yeah, I, I admit like mo the people who I had in my entire career, the people who I had the most conflict with were typically number one salespeople. So, uh, and, and so we teach sales leaders um, that when you're trying to coach, when you're trying to do a corrective action coach or, or, or um, try to improve behavior, um, remember that the person you're coaching thought whatever it is that they did was a really good idea. Yeah. And now you have to ask a question to help them help understand, help you understand without judgment why they thought it was such a good idea before you go into any corrective action. And so uh, you've got, and that coaching kind of ends at, at least start with good intent of trying to discover, but you've yeah. got some really concrete, here's some questions to ask, start it with how and, and, and what. I, I think that that, I, I call what you just said, the assumption of intelligence, that no matter how silly or unintelligent someone's behavior looks from our perspective no one no one woke up in the morning and said you know i think i'm gonna do something really dumb today and so they have a very good reason now and, and i think that you know i found that sometimes um you know we have there's one person i'm thinking of like somebody i'm coaching who's having like some struggles with a you know an ex-husband uh, and like some of the things that this person does like are mind-blowing but I think I constantly find myself thinking like if you were to go through that person's history of their life and all the challenges that they've been through and how they were parented and, you know, that they're, albeit like really negative kind of alarmist view on life makes a lot of sense. I mean, yeah. if you think, if you think that like, not only is the glass half empty, the glass is, is almost empty, then that kind of is a pretty, that may explain someone's behavior, right? You're absolutely right. And so kind of going back to, um, to the CEO, I, this happens at every level. And this, this isn't just that salesperson, it's your sales leader, it's your vice president of sales when you're the, the CEO and it's your uh, head of IT, it's your CIO who every single interaction you have on your team uh, to get the most out of them, it's start with that assumption, ask better questions, uh, lead by asking questions is a brilliant approach. Um, and so what do you think would have happened if you had led your company using some of the insights that you developed since leaving that company? I have no, I have no doubt that we would have already, we would already have been a, a billion dollar company. I mean, like we were, my business partners and I were um, I mean, it was daily conflict for 20 plus years. And if you imagine like taking all that drama and conflict out and taking all that energy and devoting it towards serving customers or building products or serving employees, uh, there's no question in my mind that we would have been a company, you know, five times larger yeah. uh, than what we are today. And I'm going to ask the inverse of that same question. What do you think would have happened if you had continued to be that kind of leader into today where we're suffering from the great resignation and people are leaving unrewarding jobs. So we had the unique, I have a kind of a unique, we had the unique thing that we had an amazing culture. 
So like, uh, you know, the last year where I was CEO, we had 99.3% employee engagement. And admittedly, I, I credit less so, well, I think I cast a good vision that attracted great people. Uh, I was fortunate that I had much more um, compassionate leaders between me and uh, the bulk okay. of the, the rest of the employees. And, and I wasn't, I wasn't, I mean, I wasn't, I didn't yell and scream or anything like that. I was just pretty demanding and uh, in terms of the results that we expected. But uh, I, I think what's happening here is, so I believe that our job as leaders is not to get people to, um, is not to stop people from leaving, it's to stop people from looking. And I was actually interviewing one of my, my employees just over the, the weekend for a piece I'm working on, and it's his second 10-year anniversary. So he said, in my first 10 years of the company, um, you know, I've been gone for five or six years, but he's still a friend. So my first 10 years were perfect. And then I got a new manager. And like one day, I just decided I'm out. He left. I actually helped him to get, helped him to get a job uh, at another company because I wanted him to land in a good spot. And about two years later, when that manager was gone, he came back and he's actually next year, he's going to be celebrating his second 10 year anniversary with our company. And, and I said, I just want, I want to know, why did you leave? Like the real reason, not the one, not the BS one you gave me like, you know, 10 years, 10 years ago. Um, why'd you come back? And most importantly, why do you stay? And he's, uh, we talked a little bit about, I think that what's happening is, you know, some people quit and leave, but there's a lot of people who are actually quitting and staying. Yeah, it's really the, the 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 scary thing is, is the it's the best employees that quit and leave because they're the ones that have options. Yeah, this is one. This is a guy who could easily get a job making one hundred or two hundred thousand dollars a year, probably in today's environment within weeks. If he just he's not even on LinkedIn. That's how happy he is. Uh, and uh, but then the real challenge is all those people who say, you know what, I looked. And I couldn't find anything better. So I'm just going to stay here and I'm just going to kind of spend more time with my family. I'm going to kind of, um, you know, and I had, I had heard a story of one manager. He was, he, he was working in more of a blue collar setting. And he said there was one time where his employees literally laid on the floor because they wanted to get him fired. <laughs> and so, but even in a white collar setting, like people are, there's literally employees that are laying on the floor, you know, they're just, they're not, you don't see it because they're on zoom you know, or they're not on their computers. Um, and I think that like, you know, I was speaking at a couple uh, large IT conferences over the last couple of weeks and, you know, everybody's, you know, how do we get our employees to come back to the office? And I think the challenge is not, how do we get our employees to come back to the office? How do we get them to come back to work? I had a conversation with a guy who ran a sales, who runs a sales team for a large fortune 500 company um, that all of your listeners would know the name of this company if I mentioned the initials. And he was, you know, he's, you know, we have a pretty open relationship. He was, you know, making three, $400,000 a year. Uh, been working for this company for 10 plus years leading. Uh, and they offered him an opportunity to run the Western side of the United States in addition to the Eastern side of the United States. And he turned it down. It would have been a hundred thousand dollars more because I don't really want to travel an additional 40 nights a year. And this, this particular individual doesn't even have young kids any longer. And so, uh, and then he started telling me about this business that he created over COVID. And I said, how many hours a week are you working on this side business? His online sales business. He goes like 25 hours a week. And I said, do you realize your company was paying $400,000 a year 
to get 50 to 60 hours of your time before, before COVID. And now they're spending $400,000 a year and they're getting half of that. He's not going to leave that company until he, until and if he gets his other business off the ground to where he says, you know what, I think I can make more money or even probably half as much money doing this other thing. And, and who's, who's hurting. Yeah. So this is, this is why engagement and keeping, it's not, I don't think it's, it's not so much about keeping our salespeople and our employees engaged. Sometimes it's about not pushing them away. It's less about keeping them. And it's more about not saying the things that actually destroy their engagement. You know, ping pong tables and pizza parties only go so far, which is actually not very far. Yeah. I, Christopher, I think that's, um, there's, there's a lot of insight there. Um, the fellow that I wrote a, another book on sales coaching uh, talks about the fact that coaching is there to get discretionary effort. There's, mm-hmm. there's a minimum effort that everybody's going to do. And your job as a, a leader is to elicit a, a, any calories of discretionary effort are on you as the leader to, to elicit. And uh, that makes a lot of sense. Um, But I think you're putting uh, three dimensions on it. And that is make sure that they are engaged and they don't want to leave, that they're they're truly engaged. This is what they want to spend their time doing. Yeah. Um, That that makes all the difference. And I think that, you know, if you think of, we, we used to, I don't, we, we stopped asking employees, like, why are you leaving when they, you know, when they quit? And we started asking, tell me about the day you decided to update your resume. And that was where we heard the stories of, well, my manager or somebody said this to me. And I said, that's the last straw. And so when we look at why people leave, usually it's uh, when they leave, if they're, I think another thing comes in is like, you know, whenever someone's leaving, are they running towards something or are they running away from something? And sometimes do people do just get kind of a random call out of the blue and they're like, wow, this is the perfect job opportunity or whatever. But most of the times they're running away from something because there's something that someone in the organization, usually their boss, but sometimes it's a coworker. They're, they're like, I just don't want to deal with working with this person any longer. And, uh, and, and, and the more we as leaders can avoid those situations, then those are the things that we can do to keep people from leaving the organization, but also keep them you know, coming back to work every day and not, uh, not, not uh, for half, half days. Yeah. Not for half days. Yeah. Uh, Christer, great conversation. We could keep going, but why don't you uh, tell people how to get a hold of you, how to learn more, how to learn more about, um, about what you do and how you help your clients. So most of what I do is keynote speaking to large audiences about, you know, how to put these things into, into practice. Uh, the book, uh, which is uh, now a number one Wall Street Journal bestseller, um, you can get the book. Uh, we're actually part of my mission is to change the words of the world. And now that my company has been sold, uh, I don't actually draw any income from this. We actually donate all the profits from this movement um, to causes that are helping us to change the words of the world. Um, you can get the book uh, from talkshift.com. Uh, and you just pay shipping and uh, printing costs and we'll, we'll ship you a copy of the book. If you prefer to pay twice the price and put the money in uh, Mark uh, in uh, Jeff Bezos's pocket, you can get it from Amazon uh, as an alternative. Um, and uh, one of the things I would say is that one of the things we did really unique with this book is we created a video book. 
So often people who don't enjoy reading books, if you've ever read a book and you're like, oh man, I wish Mark would read chapter nine, but I know he's probably not going to read this whole book. Um, you can actually, if you get the video book, you can actually share just that one chapter with anyone in your life. So it's great for a leader who maybe wants to start a conversation in their team uh, about just one of the shifts that they want to put into practice. Um, and, uh, and that's, you know, that's what we're all up to is changing the words of the world, starting Super. with uh, teams and businesses. Talkshift.com. Yep. All right. Krister, what a great conversation. Thank you for investing some time with us today. Thank you very much, Mark. And thanks for joining us, everybody, on the Value Clarity Podcast, where we remind you that customer perceived value and how you are perceived by your manager is all in your the other person's mind, which means that sales, management, leadership is a lot more like brain surgery than you might have thought. Thanks and have a high value day. Well, it ain't easy because value's in your buyer's brain. If you're selling on only your features, you're going to drive both of you insane. And if you ignore your customers' outcomes, you're bound to be paying your dues because you'll be singing those old don't know value blues. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.